0: Please keep your Bibles open to Psalm 133 as we come to the penultimate psalm of the Psalms of Ascent. That means the second to the last psalm. We have been on a journey working through the Psalms of Ascent. And the last three psalms focus on Zion. They focus on Zion and the people of God within Last week, we saw the importance of the king and God's chosen place, Mount Zion. And we learned that the church is God's Mount Zion on earth. And so while we conclude the Psalms of Ascent with a focus on Zion, we also conclude with a focus on the people of God and their king. And while last time we focused on the king and the place of God's dwelling, today we are going to focus on the communion of saints. The communion of saints. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess the communion of saints. And that is what this psalm is all about. One commentator writing on this psalm of unity said there would be no need for a psalm on unity except for the fact that our entire life experience is one of division and discord and pain and, and the very opposite of unity. And not merely in the world, but also in amongst, amidst the people of God. Disunity, disharmony, and that's been our experience. Historically, this psalm has been a feature in uh, the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. It's It's a psalm that the church has used to call us together before we come before the Lord's table. But even before that, it was a longing for the reunification of the people of God, as these earthly pilgrims who were originally singing this psalm would be thinking about the reuniting of the Northern and southern tribes of Israel. So, in the days of the Old Testament and the days of the New Testament, the church has experienced disunity and division. It's also just merely experienced the facts of life about the church being scattered abroad over the whole world, seeing missionaries go off, seeing friends go off, seeing life circumstances move people around the world. But our greatest longing as the people of God is for the experience of joy and the unity of the brotherhood. And that's the focus of this psalm this morning. The purpose is to show the goodness of brotherly unity. Why is it good? Why is it pleasant? And then secondly, we also, in light of the context of this psalm, in the Psalms of Ascent, also see it as a prayer for unity. So we're going to see the goodness of unity and we're going to see how it is a prayer for unity. The, the whole point this morning is that Psalm 133 is the hymn of Christian unity because everything that is praised and prayed for in it is fulfilled in Christ and his Jew and Gentile church. This is a hymn of Christian unity because everything spoken in Psalm 133 is fulfilled in Christ and for his church. So let's begin with the first point, and I'll put it in question form, an argument from the text Why is brotherly unity good and pleasant? Why is brotherly unity good and pleasant? And I'm going to give you two reasons. Because it is a communion in grace and a communion in glory. A communion in grace and a communion in glory Let's look at that first communion first because it is a communion in grace. Brotherly unity is good and pleasant because it is a communion in grace. So we read in verses 1 and 2, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We see the focus here is on the goodness and the pleasantness of brotherly unity, when we live together as the people of God. And in verses 2 and 3, then, we see two similitudes or two comparisons, two illustrations, one that has to do with precious oil on the beard of Aaron and one that has to do with the dew that falls on Hermon. And we're going to begin in verse 2. We see brotherly unity is good and pleasant because it is a communion in grace and I get that from the role of Aaron, and we're going to look at that now. Aaron was the great high priest of Israel, the first high priest in Israel's priesthood. The anointing of Aaron symbolized the forgiveness of God over his people. The, the anointing of Aaron symbolized that God had made a way for sinful people to go before him in worship and in fellowship. And in the Old Testament, the high priest went in once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people of God. And throughout the year, the priesthood led Israel in making the appropriate sacrifices to stay in right relationship With God. And it all happened through God's anointed priests and in God's anointed way. Uh, In fact, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu offered unholy fire or strange fire and they were struck down by God. And so the only way that God's people could have union with God and communion with Him was by grace and by the grace that God had appointed through Aaron, through the sacrificial system. All of this, of course, was a mere foreshadow of Jesus' anointing as our great high priest. The word Christ in Greek means anointed, anointed one. That's why we call him Jesus Christ. He is the anointed one who underwent the baptism of John, was anointed by the Spirit to be our mediator and our redeemer as our great high priest. And everything that Jesus did was that we might experience union and communion with him. Jesus represented us in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. He represented us in undergoing all the humiliations of life that we deserved as sinners. He represented us on the cross as our substitute for sin. He represented us in being buried and under the power of death for a time. He did all of those things that he might share his grace with us. And as the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus is the curtain in the temple that was torn in two that we might have access to God through him. That we might come, even the the writer of Hebrews says, with boldness before the Father because of our union and communion with Jesus. Jesus poured out His Spirit upon us that we might be united to Him. And in that union with Jesus, all of the gifts and graces of God are poured out to His church. We commune in, in His grace, the justification that He purchased for us, that we can stand justified before God. The adoption That we have as being redeemed children. The sanctification, the ongoing work of the Spirit in shaping us and molding us and conforming us to the image of Jesus. The pouring this out upon the church so that we have this fellowship together with the Father. That's why this psalm was so often used. For in the Lord's Supper because it's at the Lord's Supper that we are reminded that we are all one body in Him. We are redeemed in Him as we feast on the Lord's table together. We share that communion in grace with each other. And all the gifts that God has poured out on His church are things we share with each other. All the, the, the lists of gifts in First Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 are ours to be shared for the upbuilding of the body. The gifts of encouragement, of hospitality, of mercy, of teaching, of administration are all given that we might be built up and experience that communion in Jesus' grace together. That is the goodness and that is the pleasantness of brotherly unity that we get to experience the foretaste of all these things together in grace. God's sustaining grace to keep us moving forward t- to the heavenly city while still on earth in a place of darkness and hostility. Brotherly unity in the body of Christ is good and pleasant. Because it is the blood-bought blessing of our union and communion with our great high priest and his people. It's a blood-bought blessing. And the reality for us is such as we find in Romans 12, as Paul said, we are one body in Christ. We are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We belong to each other in a way far deeper than blood. We are spiritually bound to each other as the family of God. When we gather on the Lord's Day, it is as if we are gathering for the great family reunion. And we gather in anticipation of the great family reunion when we will be bound to all of God's people who have gone before us and to God himself, world without end. Amen. So when we gather as the church, or when we communicate communicate and fellowship with each other on earth, we are sharing in that communion of grace. That is heavenly, that is eternal, that is lasting, that is the taste of heaven that we need while we are still pilgrims on earth. That is how good and how pleasant brotherly unity is it. We taste heaven as we join together. We experience all that Jesus has accomplished for us and the foretaste of life to come. So my first argument for why is brotherly unity good and pleasant, I take from verse 2, because it is a communion in grace. But now let's turn to verse 3 and see how it is also a communion in glory. A communion in glory. In verse 3, the psalmist says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Brotherly unity is good and pleasant because it is a communion in glory. This is the promise for Zion. Mount Zion would be the place where God's glory would dwell. And in the Old Testament, it was a place, it was a mountain, it was a temple. But even that was just a foreshadow of this spiritual reality that God's people in the new creation would be the heavenly Mount Zion. And we saw last week from Hebrews 12 that the writer says, you have come to Mount Zion. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You have come. But we also talked about how this is a now and not yet reality. We're still waiting to come into it. The church, as it were, is is like an embassy. An embassy is sovereign soil in a foreign land, another country's sovereign soil in a foreign land. If you go to the the U.S. embassy in Norway, when you go to the embassy, you are on U.S. soil. If you go to the Norwegian embassy in the U.S., you're on Norwegian soil. That's that's how an embassy works. And and our church is an embassy. And we are that Mount Zion, while yet we wait to return to the Mount Zion, to the new creation, to the dwelling of God with his people face to face. But God has promised his glory to be there. And the physical Mount Zion of the Old Testament was a foreshadow of the church and of the new creation. And it was a foreshadow of the blessing of Christ that we share in union and communion in his glory. So I want to talk about that glory now. First of all, we commune in Christ's glory in the sense that every provision and every blessing that we need has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 1:3: Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every, not just some of the spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. As the church, we commune in Jesus' glory and that every provision has been given to us. And even as the text is a foreshadow of that, of the dew of Hermon running down on the mountains of Zion. If you've been to Israel, you know, or if you've seen pictures, you know that Israel is not what you would call a rainforest. It's not the west coast of Norway. (laughs) It is dry and parched. And God, I believe, intentionally put Israel there because they would need to know that their every provision for life depended upon him. Depended on him to bring the rain. To the mountains of Zion. And in the same way, our every spiritual blessing is dependent on Jesus giving it to us. And He's given every one of them. So Psalm 133 is a blessing of our communion, it's a foreshadow of our communion with Jesus in glory. So communion and glory, we see it in the sense that every provision and blessing has been given to us. There's also another sense in which we commune with Jesus in glory, and that is by being transformed into the image of His glory. Now that statement could occupy books and books. What does it mean that we are being transformed into the image of His glory? But Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 3, talking about the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit, and he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we gaze upon the glory of the Lord in His Word, in the Gospel, we are being transformed into that same image. Talk about communion in glory being transformed into His image. We also commune in glory in the sense that He gives us everlasting life. Remember what He said to the thief on the cross who repented. He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And we will commune in glory with Jesus on the day of resurrection and judgment, as Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I like the way that the Westminster Divines summed up this communion in glory in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 90. And the question is, What shall be done to the righteous on at the day of judgment. And the answer is, at the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds shall be set on his right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted. No more shame. Shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, that is demons and wicked men, and shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, and made perfectly happy and holy both in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, to all eternity, and this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. The psalmist says in Psalm 3 that brotherly unity is good and pleasant because it is like the dew of Hermon which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. The Lord has commanded the blessing of life evermore through our, communion, our union and communion with him in grace and in glory. If you want to summarize what has Jesus done for you, you can summarize it in this theological way. That we have been united to Jesus by his life, death, and resurrection. And that we now share in communion. His, we, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful. Communion, fellowship. We now fellowship. We commune with Jesus in his grace and in his glory. In his grace and in his glory. Let's turn now to our second point and our second question. Why is brotherly unity something that we should pray for? Why is brotherly unity something that we should pray for? And here I want to make an argument from the context, the the setting of Psalm 133 within the Psalms of Ascent. Why is brotherly unity something we should pray for? And I'll give you four things in closing. One, because it is so often absent. Because unity is so op- often absent. We need to pray for it. I believe that Psalm 133 was placed as the second to last psalm in the Psalms of Ascent because as God's people were returning from exile to the land of promise to worship the Lord, they were all t- all too aware of the fact that there was great division amongst God's people. A Jewish commentator on Psalm 133 said argues that the point of Psalm 133 and its placement in the Psalms of Ascent, it's placed there because it is a hope for God's pilgrim people for the reunification of the northern and southern tribes of Israel. Remember that the kingdom was divided by Solomon's son, because of Solomon's great sin of walking away from the Lord and worshiping false gods because of his many pagan wives. And it was Rehoboam who divided the kingdom, and God gave the northern ten tribes to Solomon's servant Jeroboam, and the kingdom was rent into. And after a season of uh, apostasy, of walking away from God, the Lord removed the northern tribes from the land through Assyria in 722 B.C. And not long after, in 586, the Lord removes Judah, the southern tribe, from the land through Babylon. And so now... God's people are scattered throughout the empire because of their sin and they're walking away from God. And many of those people never came back. Many of those people never came back. But those that did saw this as a fulfillment of a promise that God had made in Ezekiel 37. I want to read that. Uh, To you, or, or at least a few things from Ezekiel 37. God told Ezekiel to take a stick and write on it for Judah. And he told him to take another stick and write on it for Joseph. And Judah represented the southern tribes, and Joseph represented the northern tribes. And he said, Take those two sticks and make them one. Make them one stick. And he pro- the Lord promises through Ezekiel that they will again become one nation. They'll no longer be two nations, but one nation. There will be one king to rule over them all. They will have one shepherd, one of David's heirs. They will dwell in Zion forever, with their prince forever. God will make a covenant of peace with them. And he will set his sanctuary in their midst forever. That's Ezekiel 37. And he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. So as these pilgrims are walking back, singing these songs of Zion, these Psalms of Ascent, they're hoping and asking, is this now the time when God will reunite his people and bring them back together at last? Was this the time but we know from the fullness of the New Testament that God's plan wasn't simply to bring the northern and southern tribes back together and call it a day. It was to unite Jew and Gentile together as one new man in the place of the two. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And I, we read Ephesians 2 last week. I won't read it again. Ephesians 2, 11 to twenty. Uh, verses 11 to 22, how we've been made one new man in the place of two. The great argument and problem in the New Testament is how can Gentiles join the kingdom of God? Jesus actually said that at one point in his ministry and they sought to throw him off a cliff. They loved everything Jesus was saying until he said the promise is also for these pagan Gentiles whom I also have called The union, or might I say the reunion, that God promised and that God's people prayed for in Psalm 133 was not merely for the reunion of the southern and northern tribes, but the union of all of God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And God is still doing that today, and therefore we must pray that he brings it to pass. But there weren't just Jew-Gentile divisions. There is also church divisions that God's people have experienced, which is why we need to pray, because it's so often absent. Church divisions. Remember what Paul said to to the church at Corinth in chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And quarreling, quarreling, quarreling is far too often the case, even in the church. And if that's not enough, you also have wolves and false teachers. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So why do we pray for brotherly unity? We pray because it is so often absent. It was in the Old Testament. It was in the New Testament church and it still is today. Divisions separate us. I want to include one other note on this first point of why we pray for brotherly unity. It's not just divisions that separate us, but it's also the mere facts of life that separate us. I think in our church, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quickly learning the, uh, the emotional toil that an international pastor faces of seeing beloved families come and go because of international business or uh, global politics or the military. And uh, Nate and Lila, you guys have, I think, two more weeks with us. And we're feeling that, that grief. And we've had a number of other families return home. And just the facts of life separate us. And I wish we could stay together for the day of glory. God also challenges us to grow and to make disciples of all nations and to plant churches. And I'm seeing another part of our church here that will soon go and plant a, a church in another part of the country, which is so needed. But it's it's a grief. I wish we could all just stay together and be be one body. And we'll still work together, of course, and minister and serve together. But we will be separated in some ways. And But we long for that day when the Lord will return and we'll all be united. For the day when when beloved departed saints who have died before us, where we will see them again, where we will be with our Lord. That's why we pray for brotherly unity. Not just because of divisions, but also the facts of life that separate us and send us around the world. Another reason we should pray for brotherly unity is because of the Bible's warnings. Because of the Bible's warnings. And just in brief, Paul says to the church in Corinth that was very divisive. He said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. If we become those that stir up a divisive spirit to destroy the church, there's a sober warning that God will destroy him. And so we, we pray for unity because of that, that we might be preserved. Thirdly, we pray for unity because it was our Lord's greatest desire. Because it was our Lord's greatest desire. I read to you in our scripture reading from John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, what was on his mind? His mind was on the glory of the Father, now being manifested in him and then being manifested in his people. That he might share his glory with us. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The last thing on Jesus' mind as he was going to the cross was the unity of his people with him and that communion and grace and glory that he was about to achieve for us on the cross. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to pray like Jesus and we need to emphasize the right things like, Jesus in unity was his dearest desire for his people. Lastly, why is brotherly unity something we should pray for? Because there in Christian unity, God has commanded the blessing. To a very divisive church in Corinth, Jesus, or Paul says to them, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. And then we have this great promise that brings us back to Psalm 133. Live in peace. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you if we want to experience the blessing that the Lord has commanded to be on Zion like the dew that refreshes the soil, on our parched hearts, we must live in peace. For it's when we live in peace that the God of love and peace is with us also. So brothers and sisters, Psalm 133 is a hymn of Christian unity and one that we ought to sing as often as we can. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life evermore. When we live in unity, the blessing of God runs down to us. Like the oil on Aaron's beard to his garments. When we dwell in unity, the blessing of the Lord falls on us like the dew on the mountains of Zion. So, if we want to experience a fresh outpouring of the work of God in our day and in this country, it begins with brothers and sisters who dwell in love and unity together. For the glory of God and for the good of his people, world without end. Amen.